Nuclear cleanup. Ha! Now there's a contradiction in terms. While the nuclear industry gobbles up money supposed to be applied to genuine renewables and promotes its new, improved, bright, shiny object small modular nuclear reactors, they never bothered to reveal what they plan to do with the radioactive waste and mess created by their technology after they've broken down, had an accident, or just outlived their financial viability for the industry that spawned them. In other words once they've been shut down. Take Three Mile Island, site of the worst nuclear accident in U.S. history, a core meltdown at TMI-2, and now the graveyard of two non-functioning nuclear reactors stuck on an island in the middle of the Susquehanna River. The nukesters would like you to ignore what happens next to these radioactive messes, and it takes a genuine, honest nuclear expert to point out people when they heard the news tmi closed in 2019 they thought game over no that's just game beginning this is the worst part because now you have a large contaminated asset that doesn't generate profits and you've got a corporate raider at the one plant tmi2 who just wants to do a quick dirty and get out of here and then the other company does constellation which owns tmi1 they're basically saying we'll get back to you in 2075 well If there are no reliable plans in place to clean up the radioactive mess left behind, not just at Three Mile Island, but by every nuclear reactor on the planet, perhaps then it will start to dawn on you that there is, as yet, absolutely no way out of that deadly radioactive seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we talk with Eric Epstein. He is a veteran activist and chairman of Three Mile Island Alert. We learn what's been happening or not happening to clean up the radioactive remains of two nuclear reactors, including one that had a core meltdown. Here's the spoiler. It's a convoluted legal mess and still being argued with no resolutions in sight. We will also have nuclear news from around the world. Linda Pence-Gunter, with the Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story, Numbnuts of the Week for Outstanding Nuclear Boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than will probably be on the agenda for the U.S. Congress after today's midterm elections, no matter whether things end up being red, blue, or purple. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, November 8, 2022, And here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. In Ukraine, on November 3rd, 
Off-site power was lost at both the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, the six-reactor facility that has been under such stress since the beginning of this war, and also cut one of three power lines used by the South Ukraine nuclear power plant to run its three reactors, prompting the site to reduce the power of one of its reactors by 50%. Power was restored two days later on November 5th, and during the downtime for grid electricity, the cooling pumps were run by diesel backup generators. But now comes word that there is only 15 one five days of diesel left as of November 3rd, and no word as to how much diesel was used in getting to the power being restored on the 5th. And there has been no word of any replenishment of the diesel supplies since then. Russian forces have been seen building a mysterious structure at Zaporizhia, which, according to the State Inspectorate for Nuclear Regulation of Ukraine, is a violation of the requirements of Ukrainian legislation, norms, rules, and standards of nuclear and radiation safety. Carrying out such construction, installation, and commissioning works is prohibited, and occupying Russian forces are not allowing power plant personnel access to the site of the construction. What fresh hell is this? In the U.S., the Nuclear Regulatory Commission report, courtesy Edwin Lyman, who is Director of Nuclear Power Safety for the Union of Concerned Scientists. The NRC found two violations at the Vogel 1 and 2 nuclear reactors in Georgia. One was related to an incident where workers not qualified in radiation protection procedures were allowed to enter a high radiation area in the Unit 2 containment. The Grand Gulf nuclear plant in Mississippi continues to rack up violations, this time a security violation associated with what the NRC is calling a lack of good teamwork. I'd love to have that translated. An NRC staff is proceeding with a rulemaking sought by the nuclear industry to eliminate the requirement that licensees immediately notify the agency and the public of several categories of non-emergency events. In other words, according to them, what we don't know won't hurt us, or at least not until it's too late for us to file any kind of claims against them. We will link to an article from the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists at thebulletin.org that the new U.S. nuclear posture review is a major step backwards. Among other naive missteps, the review describes U.S. nuclear modernization plans as, quote, a necessary response to Russia's and China's activities and ignores the logical and inevitable response of both countries to U.S. plans. And we will also have up a TV report from WKRC in Cincinnati on how a local family's home was found to be riddled with dangerously high levels of radioactivity. Analysis by renowned environmental radioactivity expert Dr. Michael Ketterer revealed that the samples contained enriched uranium-235 approaching the grades of material used in U.S. light water reactors. And that means that the level of uranium and enriched uranium is nearly three and a half times higher than what's considered to be natural. Over to Japan, where we'll start off with... Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out of week. We've already covered the story that Japan wants to allow its nuclear reactors to run for 80 years, 
But looking at the kind of propaganda that's coming out of Japan, we have to revisit this. First of all, Japan's Nuclear Regulation Authority proposed that the safety of nuclear plants aged 30 years or older be checked at least once a decade to obtain approval for continued operation. Once every 10 years? Right, like nothing major could possibly go wrong in that time frame. Then, this article in Japan Today said if safety is confirmed, meaning once every 10 years, Japan may be able to authorize nuclear plants to run for 80 years, as in the United States. Well, they didn't do their research because in February of 2022, federal nuclear regulators, meaning the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, reversed course on letting three of the nation's nuclear power plants run for an unprecedented 80 years, arguing an updated environmental study is needed beforehand. This ruling applied immediately to the two nuclear reactors at Turkey Point in Florida and the one at Peach Bottom in Pennsylvania. But that's not all, because the decision applies to other reactors that have either won approval to operate for 80 years as well as others with pending applications. So shame on you, Japan today, for not having done your research or even a simple Google search. Which would have shown that there is no basis left in America for the extension of 20 more years to 80 years of operation for any nuclear reactor in this country. And that should be the same for Japan as well. And that's why, Japan Today, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. Also from Japan comes word that on the Fukushima cleanup, 12.1 Trillion yen, or just under 83 billion with a B US dollars, has already been spent to deal with the 2011 disaster at that nuclear power plant. This, according to the Board of Audit of Japan. A new study done in Fukushima to evaluate the concentration of radioactive cesium in the skeletal muscles of 22 wild boars still showed radioactivity concentration that exceeded the regulatory limit for foods. And at a time when Japan is announcing the restart of 17 nuclear reactors by 2023, the question of radioactive waste management persists. In the village of Satsu on the island of Hokkaido, a nuclear waste storage project has been taking shape that will, if it goes through, receive 19,000 tons of radioactive waste that has been piling up in the country's power plants and particularly in Fukushima Daiichi, where storage capacity is purported to be saturated. Although Satsu officially submitted an application to become this stored site, the inhabitants feel that they were not consulted and accuse the municipal council of having made the decision alone. According to reports, more than 50% of the inhabitants of Satsu are against it. The area is prone to earthquakes and the radioactive material must be stored for more than a thousand years with no danger to human life. In France, opponents of the Bray nuclear waste burial project, which is similar to the one in Japan, have lent their support to the inhabitants of Sotsu in their opposition. In this week's Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story, Beyond Nuclear's Linda Pence Gunter of Beyond Nuclear looks at Poland's bizarre decision to choose the American company Westinghouse to build three new reactors, the same company that went bankrupt. 
trying to build them in the U.S. I hope people like sour lemons in Poland because they are about to get three really rotten ones. With breathtaking myopia, amnesia and denial, Poland has agreed to partner with Westinghouse for the construction of three AP-1000 American reactors. Yes, Westinghouse, the company that bankrupted itself trying to build four reactors in the US, only two of which are still under construction. Those two, at Plant Vogel in Georgia, were originally predicted to be operational by 2016. Instead, they still aren't finished, and the cost has already ballooned higher than $30 billion. But wait, it gets worse. One of Westinghouse's executives, company senior vice president Jeffrey A. Benjamin, has been charged with 16 felony counts, including conspiracy, wire fraud, securities fraud, and causing a publicly traded company to keep a false record, all over the company's handling of its now-canceled VC Summer two-reactor project in South Carolina. The Poland deal was in part brokered by U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris and U.S. Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm. Shame on them. But why on earth would Poland choose Westinghouse? Obviously, its track record had nothing to do with the decision. Rather, it's likely that Poland, once behind the Iron Curtain and a member of the Warsaw Pact, but now an enthusiastic member of NATO, is eager to cozy up to the U.S. for so-called security reasons, given the war that is raging on its border. In early October, President Duda even said that he had asked to have U.S. nuclear weapons stationed on Polish territory, although the U.S. government denied receiving any such request. What's telling is that one of the reasons given for Poland's nuclear choice, regardless of the company it chooses, is that the heavily fossil fuel dependent country has, quote, a lack of immediate renewable substitutes. Like France with its nuclear power monopoly, Poland's reliance on coal and gas stifled renewable energy development there. Both the US State Department and the Polish government have declared the Westinghouse deal an important element of Poland's quest for, quote, energy security. But even the International Energy Agency dismisses nuclear power as serving that end. When defining electricity security, the agency declares that, quote, conventional power plants, notably those using coal, nuclear and hydro, are stagnating or in decline. Instead, the IEA trumpets renewables, which it says have, quote, already surged over the past decade, driven by cost reductions and favorable policy environments, a trend that is set to continue and even accelerate in line with climate change objectives. Poland won't get energy security from three Westinghouse reactors. It probably won't even get the reactors. And when that happens, it will be left with a very sour taste in its mouth. I'm Linda Pence-Gunter with Beyond Nuclear, reporting for Nuclear Hot Seat. And that's this week's hot story. Thanks, Linda. In Scotland, local councillors want to know why there has been an increase in radioactive particles found on the foreshore of Dunray in the far northern part of that country. Fifteen irradiated particles were discovered between February and March of this year, and it is understood to be the highest number since 17 were found in 1996. Particles in the marine environment around the site were deposited during Dunray's research operations in the 1960s and 70s. The particles contained cesium-137 and cobalt-60 and were said to have a realistic potential to cause harm to members of the public. To learn more, Nuclear Hot Seat contacted UK-based marine biologist Tim Deer-Jones. 
an expert we regularly consult for this show. He was traveling and unable to be recorded, but he sent this statement. In the case of Dunray particles, it is evident that the authorities have only carried out short-count 16-hour gamma emission analyses of the particles. The 16-hour count is not recommended by academics who advise that much greater accuracy of results is produced following three-day counts of 84 hours or longer. This style of analysis does not detect plutonium-238, 239, 240, uranium nuclides, strontium-90, or tritium. Gamma analysis is many times less expensive and time-consuming than additional analysis and the official detection has dismally failed to investigate the concentration of alpha emitters like the multiple plutonium and uranium nuclides which are likely to be present in discharges from such a site. There is growing evidence to imply that in UK coastal environments, these concentrations of radionuclides pose a highly significant potential source of dose via inhalation, and possible dietary consumption delivered by sea-to-land transfer mechanisms. The authorities appear to be attempting a major PR spin to persuade the public that all is well, there is no risk to the public, and that more expensive in-depth research is not required. Those were comments by UK-based marine biologist Tim Deer Jones. In the UK, They're engaged in a game of he said, she said regarding whether or not the Sizewell C nuclear plant will be built in Suffolk, only 103 miles from London. Former British Prime Minister Boris Johnson gave the project a green light, promising £700 million of taxpayer money to the project in his final policy speech in September. Doubts over its future emerged on Friday, with the BBC reporting that a government official had said every major project, including Sizewell C, was under review. However, in later briefings, a different spokesman said the nuclear plant would not be part of the autumn spending review and that the government wanted to, quote, get a deal over the line ASAP, which raises the question, whose chain got yanked and by whom? The total cost of the Sizewell C project is estimated now to be £20 billion if it's built, comes in on time and on budget. Cue the laugh track, because when it's nuclear, it always costs more and takes longer. That point is made in Finland, where the nuclear-free local authorities ask, when will the old Kyoto farce ever finish? Nice pun, guys. Finnish operator TVO has just reported that it found cracks in all feed water pumps at the plant. Once more putting in jeopardy its projected December 27 start update. But that's a little disingenuous because it's more than just a missed deadline. Old Kyoto was initially meant to come online in 2009 and construction first started in 2005, which means it's 17 years and counting. It's another nightmare project led by EDF of France, whose project at Flamanville, Normandy, and Hinkley Point C in Somerset are also years behind schedule and way over budget, whilst the Taishan 1 reactor in China was shut down for over a year after an accident. Finland is also being used as a transfer point for Russian nuclear fuel to get to Slovakia. This is not illegal because both Finland and Slovakia are EU member states 
and nuclear fuel is not subject to EU sanctions. We'll have a link up to an article called Uranium Addiction. Europe can't cut economic ties with Russia unless it cuts nuclear power use as well. It will be up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 594. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, I've got a question for you. Yes, you who are listening right now. Do you appreciate hearing the nuclear news on Nuclear Hot Seat? We do everything to make it palatable while sticking to verifiable facts. Whenever possible, there's humor, puns, literary allusions, funny voices. Hey, I have a showbiz background, and I do what I need to to put the message across. But all of that is just window dressing. The core of Nuclear Hot Seat is the honest information, well-researched, hardcore interviews, and shout-outs to activists and activities opposing nuclear around the world. Where else would you get all this information in one easy-to-swallow weekly package? So that's the wind-up. Here's the pitch. This show runs on donations. And right now, we're facing a crunch because we're not bringing in enough to cover the expenses. Without your support, we won't be able to continue. And trust me, you won't be getting this much nuclear information from the New York Times or any other mainstream media outlet. So this is important. You can help keep Nuclear Hot Seat up and running by making a donation of any size. We'd make it easy for you to do so. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com. There's a red button there for you to click. Follow the prompts, and there you've got it. You can make a one-time donation of any size. Or help sustain us while sticking to your budget and set up a recurring donation of $5 a month. Here in the U.S., that's the same as a price of coffee and a nice tip to the barista. Isn't Nuclear Hot Seat worth a cup of coffee? So help us this month, and if you can, every month, so you can continue to get reliable nuclear information from the longest-running program of its type in the world. NuclearHotSeat.com, red button. Know whatever you do to help, I am deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now here's this week's featured interview. Eric Epstein is the chairman of Three Mile Island Alert Incorporated, a safe energy organization based in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and founded in 1977, which was before the meltdown accident happened there. TMIA monitors the Peach Bottom, Susquehanna, and Three Mile Island nuclear generating stations. For more than 35 years, Eric Epstein has specialized in research, litigation, and providing expert testimony on the decommissioning, decontamination, environmental safety, rate recovery, and waste isolation at these nuclear reactors. He knows where the metaphoric bodies are buried, how deeply they're buried, and who buried them. Note that as we start the interview, NRC refers to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. I spoke with Eric Epstein on Monday, November 7, 2022. Eric Epstein, it's always great to have you here with us on Nuclear Hot Seat. It's great to be here. You really provide a wonderful service, so I'm happy to share what information I have, and hopefully it'll help. There may be listeners who are newer to nuclear issues and are not yet familiar with the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island. In fact, come to think about it, some of them may not have been born when Three Mile Island actually happened. So briefly, tell us about the accident. 
You know, that's really a good point. My daughter wasn't born and she's had to live in the shadow of Three Mile Island. And, you know, you're talking about 1979, which uh, was a difficult period. We had stagflation to Arab oil embargoes. The country really wasn't feeling good about itself. And most of America thought nuclear power was the answer. Those of us who were critical of nuclear power were marginalized. Ironically, early March, the China Syndrome comes out, which is a interesting movie that postulates what would happen in the event of a nuclear accident. We never anticipated that would happen here in Harrisburg, frankly. So when the accident began, nobody really knew about it. You know, it began at four in the morning. It was what we call a loss of coolant accident. The reactor core became uncovered. There was a number of errors, both mechanical and technical, that led to the accident becoming more severe and actually getting out of control. So that's Wednesday, March 28th. And the company is slow to alert the government and also the public. And in fact, they actually say on camera, I don't know why we have to tell you about this accident. And then Jack Irvine says, no, sorry, incident. So we have people experiencing the fear of the unknown. At the same time, they believe that nuclear power was going to unlock some energy miracle form. So as the accident dragged on, it became clear the company was being dishonest, disingenuous. The lieutenant governor and the governor lost faith in the company. The NRC was not a credible source of information. It was warm. It was spring. Kids were in school. And by Friday, the loss of coolant accident had turned into essentially a concern about a hydrogen bubble. When the the fuel rods become exposed or oxidized, they create hydrogen. So we went from not knowing what was happening to getting bad information about what was happening to then not knowing if we were going to have a meltdown. And now we're into a new zone. That's a hydrogen bubble. So this is all going for three, four, five, six days. And what's the danger of a hydrogen bubble? An explosion. So the NRC has competing calculations on the chances of a hydrogen explosion. And by this time, you know, in a community like ours, which is essentially conservative Republican church going, the community had lost faith in the source of information, which is something to remember in the event of an accident, whether it's Three Mile Island or Chernobyl or Fukushima, the company is normally and has proven to be unreliable. So by the time you get the information, it may be, unfortunately, too late. I don't even really like to call this an accident. You know, an accident is something that happens when you back out of your garage and hit a bike. A lot of the problems challenging Three Mile Island were known. This was a planned train wreck. So you're looking, you know, three, four, five days of intensity. And, you know, people evacuate. You know, when the governor ordered the precautionary evacuation, school was in session. It was a Friday. That was a target population of 5,000 people. 144,000 people left, and there's psychic terror. You may survive the meltdown. There may survive the hydrogen explosion, but you're always haunted by the specter of what if. Was I exposed to radiation? How much radiation? Was I harmed by radiation? We happen to believe the studies demonstrate clearly people were harmed by the exposure to radiation. And look, up until recently, you have active studies on health impacts as a result of TMI. Uh, Most recently, Penn State College of Medicine is looking into uh, increased thyroid cancer. So 
in short, for people who didn't experience this and who think TMI means too much information, for most of us, it meant Three Mile Island. It's an accident without an ending. And nuclear time is so hard for people to comprehend. There is no end time. This is not a simple, this is when it started and this is when it ends. It doesn't end. Time can't be encapsulated in half-lives. It's real lives. I was one of those people who evacuated, and I was also staying with friends within the five-mile evacuation zone that had been called. And every last one of those fears that you mentioned, I went through as well. Now, getting back to the chronology, the one remaining nuclear reactor at Three Mile Island was actually shut down for refueling and repairs when Mm -hmm. the accident happened at Three Mile Island 2. That's the one that had the accident. Three Mile Island 1 did resume operation, and it was only shut down on September 20th of 2019. So it kept going for a long time. Can I just interrupt? Because TMI-1, which was shut down for refueling, in those days, refueling occurred every year. That plant came online in 74 and operated at industry standards. The company wanted to restart Three Mile Island Unit 1 immediately. We kept the plant closed for six years. It was a bitter litigation. And the turning point was May 18th, 1982, when the voters in three counties Remember, conservative Republican area voted two to one, saying we don't want you to restart the plant. After that, the governor, the senators, the congressional representatives fell into place. So you had a six-year period where both plants weren't operating. And you're correct. In 2019, in a stunning move, Unit 1 was shut down. So now you have two reactors, one involved in the accident, damage, gone, and Unit 1 shut down that need to be decommissioned owned by different companies. So we get to the point where both are shut down. And I, like so many other people, breathed a sigh of relief going, ah, it's over. But as you pointed out earlier, nuclear is never over. So what was being faced as of post-September 20th of 2019? When the plant shut down, it doesn't go into decommissioning or decontamination. You know, TMI-1 was unique, and unfortunately, the company that owned it was irresponsible. Most companies across the country had constructed dry casks to store the radioactive fuel. TMI-1 had all spent fuel pools, which means it's going to be a while till you can even start to decommission Unit 1. What was pernicious about that is rather than use their own money to make the dry cask, is they shut the plant down, raid the decommissioning fund, construct the dry cask, and right now they're in the process of moving their spent fuel on site. So they're moving their spent fuel. Some of it's going to be really hot. You're not going to be able to do anything with for quite some time. TMI-2, which sits right next to it, is a highly radioactive waste site. It's a no man's land. There hasn't been a human entry in the basement since 79. And what makes it bizarre, it's the only nuclear power plant in the country where two separate companies own two separate plants, even though they're right next door to each other. TMI-1 is owned by Constellation. TMI-2 is owned by TMI-2 Solutions, a limited liability corporation. And this is kind of like the new craze in decommissioning, Libby, is that Companies want to get out. So the plant, when it is ceasing to be a profitable asset, companies want to exit. So what they normally do is transfer assets to a limited liability company. 
TMI is extraordinarily complicated. TMI1, owned by Constellation, is actually in decon. It's a separate mode of decommissioning where it's an extended decommissioning. That won't be done till 2075. TMI2, which is owned by TMI2 Solutions, a limited liability company based in Utah, wants to be in safe store. And that's what the current litigation is about. And they say they can complete the cleanup by 2037. It's our belief that an accident began in the 20th century, continued into the 21st, probably won't be cleaned up in, well into the 22nd century. The, the money and the resources just aren't there. So if the money and the resources aren't there, what are we facing? How do we get a decommissioning? How do we get rid of the waste? How do we do anything that makes sense with these two twin nuclear reactors with different parents, as it were, different Mm -hmm. corporate parents right now? What has to happen to them or what is going to happen to them in the coming years? We really didn't have a good vision as an industry of what we would do with these plants when they came to the end of their used and useful lives, which is the technical term. So when TMI was built, the plan was to restore it to its original site status. This was the language. We're going to restore it to its original site status, and you could build an elementary school on site. Okay, what has happened is the goalposts have been moved. The definitions have been changed. It's no longer going to be a decommissioned site as we had envisioned. What we envisioned is, look, you came in, you generated electricity, you created a lot of waste, you moved the waste off site, and, you know, we'll try and figure it out the best we can. What's going to happen is a nuclear crew cut. The limited liability companies are going to come in. There's going to be a license transfer. They're going to do a quick and dirty cleanup and say, look, everything's okay and then hand it back to the state, and you're going to have basically a high-level radioactive waste site forever. And that's just not Three Mile Island. That's everywhere. At the end of the day, there's nowhere to take the nuclear fuel. These plants are always located next to large sources of water. TMI is an island in the river that empties into the most productive estuary in North America. I can't think of a worse place to build a nuclear power plant or have an accident. By the way, it's located closer to an airport than any other nuclear power plant. It's less than three miles from an international airport. It's on a river, which is very productive in terms of energy and agriculture. And the way things are carved up right now is that TMI, and you can call decommissioning whatever you want. It's not going to be decommissioned as was intended. It will be dirty, short, quick. And that site's going to be a high-level radioactive waste site. And I don't know even the most ardent nuclear power proponent who would say storing radioactive waste on an island is a great idea. Especially an island that small. It's just this sliver of land in the middle of the river that is completely taken over by the two nuclear reactors. So we're in this situation, and now there is something called a proposed license amendment request. Who filed it? What are they asking? And what's wrong with this picture? Yeah, it's a really twisted corporate history at Three Mile Island. In the beginning, one holding company owned both plants. That was GPU. And those plants were 50% owned by Metropolitan Edison, 25% by Jersey Central Power and Light, 25% by Penelope. The plants then had ownership transfers. 
So the TMI-1 right now is owned by Constellation. TMI-2, the one we're talking about that was involved in the accident, is owned by a made-up fictional company known as TMI-2 Solutions. It's a limited liability corporation, so it can be shielded, obviously, from liability. So what we have here is when that transfer took place, as I just said, the lineage of this plant changed. And when the plant was transferred from First Energy to TMI2 Solutions, First Energy was actually bankrupt in just astonishing corporate moment. TMI2 Solutions was interested in raiding the decommissioning fund. There's $890 million in the decommissioning fund. And where did that come from? That's all ratepayer money. It's all ratepayer money. Look, the company hasn't put a cent, a dollar, hasn't matched anything. So you have a company, essentially a corporate raider coming in. It's a private equity company. One of the largest shareholders of TMI2 Solutions is, thank God, it's Fridays, TGIF. This is just absolutely bizarre because Wall Street views this raid as profitable. Oh, so you're going to pick up $890 million. You're going to tell us you're going to do a short and quick cleanup. And you're going to come out as being profitable. Let's invest. So Wall Street at this point is investing in failure. They don't care if the plant's cleaned up. The people that own the plant don't care if it's cleaned up. They care to make a dollar. What happened was when the license was transferred, all the old protocols, rules, and regulations transferred with it. So Three Mile Island Unit 2, badly damaged, highly radioactive plant, has a lot of oversight, a lot of regulation, as it should. Rather than try to modify that in the license, this company waited to do what they're doing now, and that is making a license amendment. They want to change the amendment, which would actually, again, as I said before, change the rules. They want to get rid of the oversight, the regulation. They don't want to do any monitoring. They don't want to do any surveillance. Now, they're in a tough spot. This is like buying a car without looking at it. They bought the plant and never looked at it. You know, they never went inside the plant. And we, we were saying the whole time, dude, you got to look at the plant. This is tough. This is a tough gig. There's a reason nobody's doing this. So on a lark, they get the plant. License transfer. They get the money. Now they're stuck. Turns out the plant's a little more damaged than they thought, more radioactive than they thought. And the only way to finesse this is to lighten the oversight. So what's happening now, and again, it comes down to money. You can't get money until you hit certain milestones in the cleanup. They haven't hit any milestones. They believe they can hit these milestones of beginning to clean the plant up if you remove the oversight, remove the regulation. And what we're saying, just not happening. You know, this is a really bad situation because, look, the other thing is, God bless the people that worked at TMI and cleaned it up. But they're gone. That's what's sad. Now it's a whole set of different people coming, really cowboys. And they looked at the plant with drones. They really are guessing that the plant, and this is what they're arguing in their brief. Ah, it's not as bad as you think. It's not as radioactive as you think. And what we've been saying is, yeah, everybody who said that before got smacked. You know, this is a really bad situation. In fact, most of us thought that the plant might have to be in tune that it couldn't be cleaned up. So now we're ha we have a company that's saying, look, we'll clean it up, but to a different standard, a lower standard. They've also said, if you look at this application, we're gonna leave waste behind. 
And they also are kind of hedging their bets saying, we'll leave it behind. Maybe it will be in a highly secured area. Maybe not, but we're going to leave it in casks. And then on the other side of this bizarre situation, Idaho is where we took all the damaged fuel from the TMI accident. And we're still arguing about how much fuel is there. Idaho doesn't want the fuel anymore. They want it out in 2035. So what we're saying is, well, you can't bring it back to the island. And now you got the people at the island who don't know what they're going to do with the mess they have. It's disappointing. I don't think it's hopeless, but I just don't think we have the right people on the ground. What is the position of TMI Alert and what are the actions that you have been taking? To be frank, we've realized some of our core objectives to shut both plants down. Unit one is down. Unit two in 93, we signed a uh, contract with the company and the NRC. It's not going to operate. So our core objectives at the beginning was to make sure these plants weren't operating. However, our second core commitment to the community was to make sure they were safely cleaned up. And as you said earlier, people, when they heard the news, TMI closed in 2019, they thought game over. No, that's just game beginning. This is the worst part because now you have a large contaminated asset that doesn't generate profits. And you've got a corporate raider at the one plant, TMI2, who just wants to do a quick, dirty, and get out of here. And then the other company, Constellation, which owns TMI1, they're basically saying, we'll get back to you in 2075. Given the extent of this mess, where does it stand now? And what is the next, if I may use a word, benchmark in this struggle to get TMI2 and 1 cleaned up? No, those are really, really good questions. You know, this is a really long odyssey. <laughs> and our organization was founded in 77. At one point, I was the youngest member and I was in college. Now, when you go to our meetings, it's like going to an ARP reunion. There's a lot of smart, older, grayer people, and that's okay, but we really haven't done a good job of bringing youth into the movement. So what I'm saying is this is really tough to get people who are concerned about the environment to stay engaged in nuclear because it's very intimidating in terms of the technicality, in terms of the economics, in terms of the fact, and we've talked about this before, you rarely win. You know, you're basically fighting a rear guard action where you're just asking the company to do the right thing. Where you're hoping the NRC, which is really not that effective at all, will develop a conscious. So one of our core issues from the beginning is to develop a public record, is to make sure that we have the public has some idea of what has been transacted over time. So we're at a point now where I think there's actually, and I know this is going to sound ironic, some favorable outcomes that it can occur, because you asked about benchmarks. TMI-1, which is owned by Constellation, not involved in the accident, their water contract expired in last October, which gave us an opportunity to litigate that case. I think we're going to get a resolution at TMI-1, which is probably as good as we can do. They will get water. It'll be at a much more reduced level. And I'm pretty comfortable at this point that none of the water, which will become radioactive during the cleanup, will be dumped in the river. So that's good. The bad thing is that the plant won't be cleaned up to 2075. Highly unlikely that you and I are going to be around. I don't have a gene pool from Methuselah. The other plant is complicated. 
they want to get in and get out as quick as possible. And so the next milestone is the NRC has to rule on our petition. And we filed two contentions. So we have to achieve standing. We have to have the contentions. If that occurs, then this process will be elongated. If it doesn't occur, then you have to appeal. Now, the caveat here is because they're two different companies, and I know this gets confusing, TMI-1 has and likely will get access to water. TMI-2 has no contract. They let theirs go in the 90s. So even if the company clears these other hurdles, it's really difficult to have a cleanup without any water. So this is probably the consistent thing with TMI. It all depends on the litigation. I I didn't think, I'm 63 now, that I'd still be doing this. You know, I really didn't think it'd come to this. People need to understand that the NRC decommissioning method for saving money is flawed. The NRC asked you to save the minimal amount. So even if we hit every ideal milestone, there's not enough money. So what's going to happen is the NRC will reduce, dilute the regulation, and the cleanup standard is not going to be much of a cleanup at all. This is, you know, an accident without an end where the community is going to have to stay engaged damn near forever. You know, it's like a funeral where the pallbearers are standing in place for 500 years. You can't let your guard down. The two things that you are asking for in the filings that... TMI alert has filed? Very modest. You know, that's one of the things people never understood about us. We only ask people to do the right thing. We ask you to put what you put down on paper, what you committed to do. And that was one of the, I think, biggest tragedies uh, of the accident was, I think, a loss of trust in people that make decisions. You know, after the accident, we were kind of naive. You know, we had petitions, we baked cookies, we had demonstrations, we were peaceful. And at the end of the day, they stuck it to us. But now you have us forever. And, you know, what we're asking for is unremarkably not remarkable. So at TMI2, we're just saying, just adhere to the standards and the regulations that we all agreed in 1993. When we finished defueling and we went to post-defueling monitored storage, another one of those scary acronyms, PDMS, we went to PDMS in 1993 because the company said, it's too radioactive. We can't do anything else. You know, we're stuck. So, okay, if you're going to mothball the plant, we said you have to do A, B, and C. Now it's 2023 and the company says, now we don't want to do A, we don't want to do B, we don't want to be C. And by the way, the standards to which we cleaned it up, you know, we're not doing that either. So this is a race to the bottom. So we're just asking them to do what they said they would do. You know, be true to what you put on paper. TMI-1 is more complicated. I suspect TMI-1 is going to make history. I think the industry, which was going towards transferring their plant license when it wasn't operating to limit liability corporations, TMI-1 may hold on to their license. I suspect you're going to see some interesting developments at Three Mile Island. And I think it's better, I'll be honest with you, that Constellation does the decommissioning than some limited liability cowboy, which is what you have at TMI too. So ultimately, what we'd like to see, do what you said you would do. I mean, is it really that hard? Just do what you said you would do. Make sure you have enough money, which you don't. I mean, again, you know, put some skin in the game 
which they haven't, and let the adult in the room do the cleanup. That adult in the room is not TMI2 Solutions. Right now, it's Constellation. They have the largest nuclear fleet in the country. I think at the end of the day, you're likely to see this island remain in its current state for a very long period of time. Given the actions of TMI Alert, are there any politicians, power brokers, anyone at all who has lined up behind what you're doing and said, yeah, do what he says, do what this group is saying. You've got to comply with what you originally agreed to. Anybody at all coming to your support? No. In Pennsylvania, is a really pro-nuclear coal state. And even the Democrats are rabidly pro-nuclear. So, and you hear this canard, oh, we're for nuclear if they do it the right way. Well, look, we were told that an accident at TMI was as likely as an asteroid. And the asteroid fell. And you screwed up. You melted the core. That's not a really accomplishment to be proud of. However, in this era of a renaissance, you get people back channel who say they support it. But we're faced with the same problem. The politicians now weren't even born when the accident happened. So the decision makers now didn't have that eviscerating, visceral impact of being lied to, of having their lives being almost taken from them, dealing with chronically elevated psychological stress. These decision makers are riding the pink cloud and making the same mistakes. And every once in a while, somebody will say, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, they're supportive when we do something like this. And this is unbelievable. TMI too basically doesn't pay taxes anymore. They got a refund because they said that their property value was minimal. TMI one pays hardly any property taxes. So the only time where politics and Three Mile Island intersect is when Three Mile Island wants a property reduction, a tax break. When are we going to hear the decisions on the current proposals that are before the NRC? Yeah, you'll get a hard uh, decision on from the, the Susquehanna River Basin Commission controls water that goes into you know large power users like nuclear power plants. So Constellation's petition or request to get their water rehooked up at Three Mile Island, that's going to be December 15th. And I think we're going to come to a good resolution there. The amount of water they use will be reduced. It should be reduced. We'd like to get a hard stop on that. You know, for us, I got a fairly good feeling that when they start to clean up and they use water and they generate radioactive water, I feel pretty good that it won't. There's no guarantees that it won't be dumped into the river, which was a big deal for us. If you remember after the accident, the company wanted to dump 700,000 gallons of water into the river. And we're like, yeah, not a good idea. So unit one, I think, is playing out okay. You know, the only caveat there is that Because the fuel is hot, I don't see them really moving into a cleanup mode anytime soon. TMI2, where we file the license amendment request objections, uh, we'll know by January. So, you know, we'll have a decision either favorably or unfavorably. And people that know us know if we lose, we'll appeal. You know, this is a boxing match. You just got to get back up. I think when people understand that Three Mile Island is not cleaned up, that it is not safe, that it's highly radioactive, they're surprised. That's part of our challenge is letting people know, man, this thing is far from being put to rest. 
Is there anything we haven't covered that you'd like to add at this time? I think the community deserves a lot of credit for staying on top of the issue. You deserve a lot of credit for covering this issue because nuclear comes in cycles, popular, unpopular. And, you know, Dave Lockbaum had a really interesting observation. I was with him one time. He said, you know, nuclear power produces a benefit. Sometimes you get the benefit for a day, a week, a month, a year, a couple of decades. The problem with nuclear power is when it goes bad, it goes very bad. And there's no go back button. And I think TMI, what I'd like people to remember, this is nuclear time. There is no ending. There's a beginning, but there is no ending. I don't know that people comprehend that. This is a funeral where, as I've said before, the pallbearers are going to have to stand in place for 500 years. And that's tough. And I'm being critical of myself. We live in a time now where the average focal point is that of a fruit fly. We move from one thing to the next thing so quickly that the challenge is going to be, this is a longitudinal history. Who steps up next to make sure the plant is monitored and gets cleaned up? That's the challenge. Certainly you and Three Mile Island Alert and the local community have done a stunningly thorough job through the years. If we can find some life extension program for another couple of hundred years from you, I will definitely send that down the line because <laughs> it's going to need at least that. For now, however, Eric Epstein, thank you so much for all the hard work you've been putting in for all these decades and especially for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Well, thanks for having me. Keep up the good work, and maybe we'll catch up again in 2023, and uh, we'll have some good news for you. Looking forward to it. Give me a call anytime. That was Eric Epstein, chairman of Three Mile Island Alert Incorporated. You can reach them by going to the website tmia.com, or you can contact Eric directly by going to Epstein at E, F like Frank, M like Mary, R, dot org. Activists, activists, shout out, shout out, shout out. Nuclear Energy Information Service, or NEIS, based in Chicago, has been doing a terrific informational series called Night with the Experts. And boy, do they have an expert for you. Edwin Lyman, of the Union of Concerned Scientists will be speaking on November 17 at 7 p.m. Central Time. His topic, Guinea Pig Nation, how the Nuclear Regulatory Commission's new licensing rules could turn your community into a test bed for risky experimental nuclear plants. Boy, you don't want to miss this one. They're still working on the exact link, but if you wish to be notified, send a message to NEIS at neis.org and again mark your calendars for november 17 at 7 p.m central and for those of you who like myself become confused when nuclear pro people start throwing around terms like fission and fusion gordon edwards of the canadian coalition for nuclear responsibility has come up with a terrific and easy to follow info sheet that explains it all We will have a link up to Fission, Fusion, and Sustainability by Gordon Edwards on our website, NuclearHotSeat.com, under this episode, number 594. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, November 8, 2022. 
Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, beyondnuclear.org, nears.org, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANW.org, the IAEA, Ed Lyman of the Union of Concerned Scientists, Dr. Paul Dorfman, ccnr.org, newsweek.com, ukrpravda.news, Wall Street Journal, Local 12 News, thebulletin.org, japantoday.com, asahi.com, nature.com, ouist-france.fr, huffpost.com, worldnuclearnews.org, nuclearpolicy.info, reneweconomy.com.au, yle.fi, itv.com, johnogroat-journal.co.uk, and, as always, the captured and compromised by the industry they are supposed to be regulating, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Our thanks to Linda Pence-Gunter for her weekly Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story. Hey, Nuclear Hot Seat's available to be delivered to your email inbox every week for free. It's easy. Sign up on your favorite podcast channel or cut to the chase. This is what makes it even better. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com, scroll down for the yellow box, put in your first name and an email address, and every week you will get one email, only one, that will contain the link and a bit of a description about the show's content. That way you won't miss the opportunity to listen to every single Nuclear Hot Seat every week as it comes through so that you can get your nuclear news when it's hot off the press. Now, if you've got a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, that's where I get my best information from. So it's up to you. Send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And remember, if you can go to nuclearhotseat.com and donate, we really need your help. Anything you can do, we will really appreciate your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2022, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as you cite the program, the website, and anything else you want to throw into the mix. This is Libby Halevi, producer and host of Nuclear Hot Seat, reminding you that we can always come up with the date that a nuclear emergency begins, but we can never come up with a date when it's over Because once it starts, it's never over. There you've got it. This has been your nuclear wake-up call. One a week, that's what you get. So whatever you do, do not go back to sleep. Because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.